All right. We are right now going through the book of Revelation. We are pretty much halfway through it, a little bit past halfway. And we are coming across a passage where we are seeing really just like a whole story kind of play out for us. But before we get into Revelation chapter 12, I want us to consider just think about the world that we live in. I mean, it just we, we examine the world, we, we see around us just a lot of different things happening in this world, right? Events after events, moments after moments. We see things like what the whole world has their attention to right now. What's going on in Ukraine? What's going on in Russia? How we, how we all respond to that? And we think about a situation like that where war is pending and we're wondering, man, why is there such chaos going on in this world? Why is, why is one nation invading another? When we think about these past few years, we think about the political divides that's happened over COVID, over the police force, over race, and all these other issues out there. When we think about all this, we're wondering, why can't we just all get along? Why can't we just, just have peace? Or consider just all the different kinds of religions out there, all the different kinds of philosophies, different ways of just thinking about this world, every religion fighting to get to gain more followers? Can we just all just do what we want, believe in what we want? We look around us, we see this just unsettling chaos around us. And really just a lack of peace. I mean, we try to have fun, and I think we do have fun, so I guess we're not really trying. And, and yeah, we do have fun in this world. We do have joys. We do laugh. But we also look around us and we realize the reality that this world is also not perfect, that this world is filled with pain and suffering. I believe the passage we're going to look at today is going to reveal to us the, un, the reality behind this unselling chaos around us. And what's the rea what that reality is, is that there's a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. And we know scripture talked about this. I even mentioned this in the previous sermon in this series. There is indeed a spiritual battle going on. And we, we read about this. We recognize that as Christians, we're engaged in spiritual battle. But I don't think we ever take the time to really think just how pervasive this battle truly is. It's everywhere. It's from, it's from the TV shows you watch. It's from the subjects you study at school. It, it goes as far as even what does it mean to, to recycle and be eco-friendly? You look at human history, and the reality is that throughout human history, it's all a spiritual battle. And so what then is this battle? Who's involved in this battle? And why does it matter to us? Why does this spiritual battle, battle matter to us? That's what Revelation chapter 12 to 14, these next few chapters that we're going to be looking at in this book is all about. And we're going to see in these next few sermons as we go through chapters 12 
through 14, where we'll see a reminder of why we have a book like Revelation, why we have an end times prophecy, something that's telling us of what is to come. The Apostle John here, who received this prophecy, who wrote this book, the Apostle John was given this vision, and in this vision, it was a reminder that everything that God is doing, everything that God has done since creation, through Israel, through the church, all of human history, everything, it was a war. It's a war for our souls. It's a war for God's people. It's a war from the very beginning. In our passage, what we'll get introduced to here is we're going to get introduced to the characters of this spiritual warfare. Those who are involved in this spiritual warfare. We're going to see three characters, three actors in this play, three casts to this show. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Let me go ahead and read this passage for us. This is God's word, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is God's word. Here in verses 1 through 6, we get an introduction to the characters of this war. And we'll get more to details starting with verse 7, which we'll look at next week. But here we just simply get an introduction. This is a synopsis of what's going on here. Let me back up a little bit just for context. If you just look back one verse, you look back at Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, we see here the seventh trumpet being blown. And if you guys remember the seventh trumpet, what it does is it reveals to us the really the final sequence of what's going to happen. And Revelation chapter 11, verse 19 says this when, when the seventh trumpet was blown. It says, Then God's temple in heaven, uh, in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And so there's, there's a lot going on here with this seventh trumpet. And then it seems like God takes a break from the visions. And he now shows this scene, a sign, these great signs that appear in heaven. And God here is showing to John, everything's coming to an end. This is what's happening. This is why I'm showing you all this. This is the story all along. And this is what I'm trying to conclude. So we see here the first of three signs, the first of three characters. First, we'll see the woman who I believe is Israel. As God unveils this scene and John gets this peek 
behind the veil, what's going on? John here sees a battle, a battle that's been happening all these years. And here this battle is reaching its final climax. And here he sees a woman, a woman who's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now the sun, moon, stars, these are common imageries um, within many different Jewish literature, not just the Bible, but even found outside of Bible in different Jewish literature. Uh, but biblically, when we see these symbols, we see the sun, the moon, the stars, when Jewish people read these and they know their Bibles, it, they, it takes their mind back to one prominent story, which is the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph back in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph was a dreamer. He dreamt and he was an interpreter of dreams. Uh, if you guys don't know the story of Joseph, he is the guy who was cast off. He had 11 brothers. He was cast off, um, sold off slavery. And from slavery, he went to Egypt and he rose up in power and actually saved his family from famine. But in the beginning of Joseph's story, he had dreams. And in these dreams, he shared his dreams with his family. And one of the dreams included the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down to Joseph. And what that dream, what that dream meant was the sun and the moon represented Joseph's parents, mom and dad. The 11 stars repre represented his brothers, and they were all bowing down to him. I mean, just, just imagine if someone came up to me and told me, I had a dream and you were bowing to me. It's, it won't usually go well, right? All of this to say, not to explain the whole story of Joseph, all of this to say is that the woman here, seen with the sun, the moon, the stars, this woman has a Jewish origin. She has a Jewish origin. Now, who is this woman? I'll give you guys three different interpretations of who this woman may be, and I can't give you the full explanation behind why they say this, but this is this, this, these are three main interpretations. First, some will say that this woman is specifically the nation of Israel, the Old Testament Israel, the nation of Israel, the ethnic Jews. So this Old Testament Israel. Others say that the woman is actually representing the Messianic community, which is back in the Old Testament, it'll be Israel, but in the New Testament, it's the church. So it's representing the Messianic community, those who belong to the Messiah. Um, and we know that to be Jesus. Others say that she is the one who represents both the church and Israel. She is the true Israel. That's the term they'll use, the true Israel. Meaning in the Old Testament, there's Israel, but in the New Testament, we find out the true Israel are those who have faith in God, specifically faith in Christ. And so the true Israel includes both Jews and Gentiles. And so this is the people of God. Now, I, I look at this, and I think you're okay to all three interpretations. I, I, you know, Revelation, we have symbols. These symbols, they're, they're, the context doesn't tell us, right? The context doesn't tell us necessarily who this woman is. Your best guess comes from your theology. Um, and, and I don't have time to go through all that theology. I, I mentioned those in past sermons. And there's a lot of theology that goes into interpreting these passages. I believe this woman here is speaking specifically about the nation of Israel, the first interpretation. That's what I take here 
um, mainly part of the explanation for that is that I believe Israel, the nation of Israel, will return in the future. I believe that that nation will come back. If the nation right now um, is back, it's it would disappear for a while, and it came back. I think what like the 40s or 50s. I can't exactly remember that date. And and so it came back. It's now a nation, but it's still under attack. The people living in Israel today aren't necessarily the ethnic Jewish people that are mentioned in the Bible. Um, they are dispersed across the world. But I believe that the nation of Israel will will return back to a prominent stage in the future. So that's that's what I hold to. Again, it's okay if you hold it to other views on this. But let's let's move on and see exactly what's going on here. So the woman here is described as having birth pains, labor pains. She is pregnant. And, and this, and when we think about a woman who has childbearing pains, this should take our minds all the way back to the beginning, to Eve. Eve who fell, Eve who, who ate the fruit, who was deceived by the serpent, Eve, her curse. God cursed her and said this, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, when we think about labor pains, they're, they're actually used throughout scripture. It's an imagery throughout scripture to talk about suffering, to talk about the pain that we feel in this, or the pain that we feel in our lives. But this, this imagery is not just about suffering, but it's also imagery that's filled with hope because at the end of labor pains is birth, it's life, it's a gift, a gift of children, a sign of blessing from the Lord. You see childbirth, and, and we, we, childbirth is, is an amazing act. It, it's a truly a miracle. It's, it's, it demonstrates really I believe a relationship between humans and God's sovereignty. Let me, let me just let me just share this from my own experience. My wife and I are expecting. Uh, you guys didn't know that we were we're expecting, and and you know, to, in order to not getting the details of how you know how you conceive, but you know, when when people try, it doesn't not only just happen, right? It, sometimes people try, and I have friends who tried for years before they actually conceive. And there, there's some, we see there's, there's human work that can get involved with trying to have a kid, but yet it's really all up to God. And even when you do, when, when, when my wife did get pregnant, it was such a miracle, just thinking about how there's life in her growing. And really there's all these, I don't know, like, I guess there are theories or there are just cultural values, thoughts about how you're supposed to take care of a baby in the womb. And there's, you know, there's my Chinese, my Chinese parents have their own culture telling us we have the American doctors telling us something different. I'm just, you know, all these different things. And really, like, who knows how does a baby truly grow in there? It's, it's such a miracle. I mean, there is some scientific evidence that you can find out and stuff like that. But I mean, some people say you can't eat certain things, no spicy foods. My, I remember my, our Chinese parents told us she can't lift up her arms. I'm like, what? What do you mean you can't lift up her arms? Like the face will come out. She, she lifts up her arms. Like so, so, there's like there's all these things that just like that doesn't necessarily make sense, and yet it's all there. It's truly an act of God of how a baby is conceived and grows and comes to birth. 
I believe childbirth is, it shows us truly a, a, a relationship between us, our work. We do need to take care uh, the best we can, but also a relationship between humans and God's sovereignty. It represents the realities of who we are and who God is. More than that, childbirth, labor, also presents the realities of human suffering and pain and the connection, the relationship with that, with the joy of knowing God's grace and his gifts. See, God constantly works through suffering. Not, not because he has to, but because it's the way he wants to do it to show us that there's indeed painful consequence of sin, right? There's pain and labor because of Eve. She ate the fruit and God multiplied the pain of childbirth. So it's a consequence of sin. And yet there's such great wonder of how God sovereignly works through that pain and suffering to bring about life. It's amazing to see how God works. And this illustration of labor is used to describe how God will bring ultimately redemption to humanity. It's how God spoke to Israel. In Micah chapter 5, verse 3, God says this, talking that he here is speaking about the small town of Bethlehem. I think, sorry, I don't have the context before me. But let me just read the verse. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Yeah, so, so this here is speaking of Bethlehem. If you read the context of Micah chapter 5, it's speaking about Bethlehem. It's a small town. And it's a small town that is going through a lot of suffering. And here the prophecy is simply saying that this small town, compared to the rest of Israel, in this small town, there will be one who gives birth to a ruler. And this one ruler will bring together the rest of his brothers, the rest of Bethlehem's greater Israel back together, the people of Israel back together, unite them together. You see, through even such a small town that is poor, that's unimportant, insignificant, there will become, there'll come a great hope that comes from that town. See how God works miracles through pain and suffering. And so this is kind of, this is what we see here. This woman is pregnant. She's crying out birth pains. And, and we were reminded of Eve. We're also reminded of all of God's promises. We're reminded of Israel who went through a lot of suffering, exile, persecution, um, enemies constantly surrounding them. And we're reminded of all this. And yet we're reminded here in verse 2 that through all that, there is hope. Hope in the birth of the child. But starting in verse 3, we see a second sign appear. And the second sign is the dragon, a great red dragon that, that appears. And suddenly things here are starting to get mystical. This is becoming sci-fi. And, and what, we, but what we see here is this great red dragon. And we have to keep in mind, this is not a cute dragon. Right? This is not Aquafina. This is... Not what you think, just you know, behind this is this is not animated movies here, right? We are we're talking about here a devastating dragon, a, a hydra here, right? Seven heads, ten horns. 
Now, what, what's, what's the whole significance of all this? The 10 horns here, well, the seven heads, no one really knows why there's seven heads. Perhaps it's to offset the seven that's going up, that's also going on throughout Revelation. There's a lot of sevens being used, but the 10 horns does mean something. And 10 horns refers back to Daniel chapter seven. And Daniel chapter seven, verse seven, uh, Daniel saw this vision, he says this, after this, I saw the night visions and behold a fourth beast. So he was seeing these beasts in his visions. A fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So we see here a beast with 10 horns. What are, then are these 10 horns? Well, Daniel actually explains this to us. Later on in chapter 7, verse 24, 25, says this, as for, the ten as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. You see, the ten horns here are ten kings. Out of this kingdom is talking about the kingdom of this beast. The kingdom of this beast, ten kings will arise, and another one will rise after them. Many believe this smaller one, this small horn that rises after them and takes down three of these kings is the Antichrist that we will see later in Revelation. And this this kingdom is not God's kingdom. It's the kingdom of the beast. It's the kingdom of Satan. You will speak words against the Most High. You will persecute the saints. And you will look to change the times and change the law. We see here this dragon. We see here this beast. And this beast then relates to this dragon that we see in Revelation chapter 12. This great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. This dragon is the leader of these nations who will speak against God. In his church, this dragon is indeed Satan. In fact, it, it tells us straight out later on, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, says, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This dragon is indeed Satan. And he will rise in power. You will bring about 10 kings and, and an antichrist. And they will all lead the world, deceive the world, to go against the God, the creator of the world. And it says here in verse 4 that this dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to earth. Now, now what is this third of stars? What is going on here? Again, there's different interpretations. What are these stars? Some interpreters believe that these stars are the fallen angels that side of Satan. So this is actually going back, um, back in time, probably a little bit after creation when Satan, who was an angel, he disobeyed God and he fell. And along with him was all his followers. So these are 
his fallen angels, these are the demons that fell with Satan. So some interpreters believe that's what's talking about here. Others think that these stars represent the angels and saints whom, who Satan is persecuting, right? Satan's persecuting these angels and saints. And so he's thrown down and there were these stars. And then others simply see the stars as stars. They're just stars that symbolize Satan's power. And that the third one is probably the way I'll take it because it's the simplest. And you don't have to jump through hoops to interpret it in any other way. It's just, they're just stars that represent Satan's destructive power. In any case, his tail swept down these third stars cast into the earth. But what's more important here is what happens afterwards. In verse four, it says the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour the child. See, the dragon has a plan here, a plan to attack the woman's child. And this here represents, again, the battle of the ages. And Satan here is the main antagonist. This is a battle between this woman and Satan. It's been going on for a long time. When we see something like this, when we see this being played out, our minds should again immediately be taken back to Genesis, right? Woman, Eve, Satan, the dragon, a serpent. This is a spiritual battle that's been going on since Genesis chapter 3. And let me just show you how this battle plays out in Scripture. Because this is the grand storyline of the Bible. This is God's story. And there's always been enmity between the woman and the serpent. Right, At, right after Satan deceived Eve and made her, tempted her to eat the fruit, there's been an ongoing struggle between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. This is what God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is God speaking to the serpent, who we know to be Satan. So we see here their offspring will be constantly opposing each other. And this offspring, which can also be translated as seed, this seed, this promised seed is an important thing that we can trace throughout scripture. It's a, it's a seed that was promised by God, one who will come from Eve's line, who will one day redeem this creation, redeem God's people, restore creation back to the way it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. And so we will see then that this, the two lines, these the serpent seed and the promised seed of Eve were always opposed to her. There's always been this war going on throughout history. And we see this throughout scripture. We see this right away after Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 4, we get Adam's Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain allows sin to creep into his heart and he murdered Abel. And, and Abel was described in Genesis chapter 4 as one who found favor with the Lord. You see, when we read that right after Genesis chapter 3, we should be thinking, Abel, that's the promise, Steve, right? He's the one who should be the one who crushed the serpent's head. And yet, Abel was found murdered in the very next chapter. We think here, what's going on? Did, did the serpent win? 
No, there's hope that's found in Genesis chapter 5 when Adam and Eve conceives again a third son named Seth. And he carries the line forward. The promised seed remains true. When we move forward to Genesis, we see the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, we see here how corrupt mankind has fell. Here, again, the offspring of the serpent has won. And all of humanity seems to be lost in sin. The Tower of Babel, you don't know the story. It's men gathering together, wanting to build this tower up, so up to heaven, all for the purpose of establishing their own name, to make a name great for themselves. But God cast them down, dispersed these men across the earth, and gave them different languages to confuse them so that they cannot work together. And so this world ends in chaos. That's Genesis chapter 11. But right after that, right after God disperses all these men across the world, soon after this chaos, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls one man, Abraham. And what does God promise to Abraham and God calls him? He promised him what these men from Babel wanted. He promised Abraham a great name. He tells Abraham, I will make your name great. You see, it's God who makes the name great, not themselves. And here again, we see this battle happening between the two. And then God says to Abraham, is then through your seed, your offspring, God will promise a nation. God will promise sons and daughters who will become his people, who will redeem humankind one day. There will, and specifically out of your line, Abraham, there will be one seed, one heir that will carry forth God's covenant with Abraham. And have here the theme of the seed continuing through. And so through Abraham comes Isaac. And through Isaac comes Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob and Esau, again, we see how the offspring of the serpent. I mean, it's funny how it's, it's funny how Satan tends to use those who are closest to us to mess us up, right? To tempt us to sin. And here, the offspring of the serpent took Esau. Satan took Esau. And Esau hated Jacob and sought to kill him. Jacob. But Jacob, who was the promised seed, he escaped. He escaped death. And though Jacob himself was not perfect, if you read his story, you can see that he's not perfect. He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. But God, yes, still blessed Jacob in the end with 12 sons who would soon become the 12th tribe of Israel. But, but even then, even though that, even though Jacob's sons become the 12th tribe of Israel and thus here the nation of Israel is being born, Israel immediately faced opposition, right? We see then the story of Pharaoh in Egypt, the offspring of the serpent again seeking to destroy the woman's seed. This war constantly going through year after year. And through it all, God still remains faithful to his promise. Israel, we know, escapes saved by Moses. As we keep going through the Bible storyline, we see all this going on. We see Israel remains, gets established, comes to the promised land. And then in the promised land, Israel still requires what? A king. It still requires a king, one who will lead Israel 
to full redemption and full restoration, one who will undo the effects of the fall and restore creation back to Eden. And this king will come from the line of Judah. That's what was promised in Genesis chapter 49, that this king will come through the line of Judah, and the line of Judah shows up in no other than David's genealogy. King David, the one chosen by God to lead Israel. Indeed, he does. Actually, a time of peace. But David himself had his own enemies, did he not? He had Saul, who caused he looked at looked to kill him, caused he looked to take him out. And even when David became king, the nation, the nation of Israel still struggled with enemies around them. Israel constantly still was being attacked. And when King David, when he died, his line of kings failed over and over again. Israel becomes divided. They go into exile. The nations around them, Assyria, Babylon, all these other nations, never stop waging war against Israel. You see, after all these years of struggle, what we see here is a spiritual battle between the woman's seed and the seed of serpents. Spiritual battle that continues on. This here, this here is truly the real history of the world. This is the storyline behind human history. All of this is going on because there's a spiritual battle going on between the serpent and the woman, between their offspring. And this is what's happening here. And so when we come here to Revelation chapter 12 and we read all this, God here is telling us this battle is soon going to come to an end. This is all that's happening. I'm not just showing you these visions because this is what I'm going to do. I'm showing you this vision to show you I'm going to fulfill my promises, even the first one I made back in Genesis chapter 3. So the Bible storyline continues. And it continues through then the one son, the male child here who will indeed redeem all of creation, the one who indeed crushed Satan and his seed. And we see then the son, Jesus. And we go back to Revelation chapter 12. We see here in verse 5, the woman gave birth to a male child. And it says here that this male child is one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. You see, Jesus is the promised seed. He is indeed the son of David who will rule over the nations. He is the lion of Judah who will hold on to the scepter, to the rod of iron. He is the offspring of Abraham, whose name everyone will know. He is the seed of Eve, the promised one, who will crush Satan's head. But even with Jesus, Satan tries to stop him. When it says here that the dragon wants to devour this child, he knows this is the Messiah. And we know through the stories of Jesus, Satan tried over and over again to stop Jesus. Even before Jesus was born, Satan tried to use Herod to kill all the babies who were being born by the Jews, all the firstborns during that time. And so Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, had to flee in order to make sure Jesus was born safely. And after Jesus was born, Satan does what? He tempts him for 40 days in the wilderness, promising him 
these things. He's trying to, again, get Satan to get Jesus to fall. And when Jesus passed all those temptations, passed all those tests, Satan then brings the cross. And though, though Satan may know what's going to happen with the cross, Satan tries his best to make the cross the most unbearable suffering Jesus ever had to go through. But God's promised seed cannot be stopped because God is because even though Jesus did indeed die on the cross on the third day, he was resurrected, defeating Satan's schemes and ascending to heaven to his father to the throne. And that's what Zachary says here in verse at the end of verse five. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. See here in one verse, in one verse, John gives us the whole story of Christ. He was born, he was meant to rule, and he was caught up to God. What this tells us, what this tells us is that Jesus is not a fallen king. This tells us that Jesus is a risen one. He's a risen king. And then in verse 6, it says, The woman here fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, in which she was nourished for 1260 days. And so the dragon, we will see later in next week's sermon, that this dragon he turned his attention then to the woman. And now he realized he couldn't defeat the son. So now he turns his attention to the woman. He's now going to make the woman suffer. He's going to try to kill her. And so here we see then 1260 days. And this refers, this comes out to three and a half years. And I believe, many scholars believe that this is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation that's being, that's unfolding here in Revelation. And if you guys remember, back in chapter 11, there were two witnesses that God sent, and they were to prophesy for the same amount of days, 1260 days. So I believe this year is talking about the same time these two witnesses are prophesying. Now, Again, we have to ask ourselves here, what's going on? There's a lot of different interpretations, and I believe the interpretation here can get a little hazy, but I'll just go through this quickly. The woman here, is she a different woman, or is she the same woman? There's some people ask that, and how is she being protected? Well, if you, I did the first one, which is, I believe, I believe the woman is still ethnic Israel. So this is still referring to the final three and a half years, and this woman, Israel, the Jewish believers, Israel, ethnically Israel is being protected here during this time. Um, whether or not it's physical protection or spiritual protection, I'm not sure, but she's being protected. Uh, the second interpretation is that if you believe this is true Israel, then perhaps this is the church, the church that's being protected in this three and a half years. Um, or if you don't, if you don't take the, don't take the literal sense of 1260 days, uh, you think that's more symbolic representing the church age today, then this woman here in verse six, it's actually a different woman is talking about the church today um, that's going through persecution. And the church today is indeed going through persecution. So that's what, those are different interpretations here. And I take the first one because I believe this is still ethnic Israel. But in any case, what we see here is that Satan doesn't stop. He doesn't stop attacking. This war continues on. This war continues on even after Jesus died on the cross and was risen up again on the third day. The war continues. 
And that means the church is not exempt from this war as well. Even though I believe this woman is indeed ethnic Israel, the church is not exempt. The church will also face persecution from Satan. In fact, we are connected to ethnic Israel because we are connected because of faith. Genesis chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Why? Because of faith. You see, while the target here of Satan might be the woman, might be Israel, the church will suffer too. Um, Satan will make our lives just as difficult as the rest of God's people. And yet, along with Israel, God will also protect the church, protect us to the end. Romans chapter 8, verse 38, 39 says, Paul writes, I am sure of I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so what does this all mean for us then? What does this all mean for us today? If this is the future, and I believe we're talking, looking here at future times, this final three and a half years of the tribulation. This is really coming to the end of all human history. What does it matter for us today? What matters to us for today is because what we see here is that the spiritual battle, the spiritual warfare is not yet over. It continues today and all the way until the end here. And so the, the, the great spiritual battle that's between the woman and the serpent continues on today as the church faces persecution, opposition, and temptations from this world. You see, Revelation chapter 12 is really introducing us to the climax of this war. It's like the final boss of a video game. This is the final battle. Until then, the spiritual warfare continues. Satan is doing whatever he can to delay the inevitable. And so then consider what we face in the world today, because again, this spiritual warfare is prevalent among all of us. Think about the entertainment, the, the technology, the politics, all of this serves as a distraction to our hearts, to the church, to distract us maybe from our greatest mission to share the gospel. Right? How many times have we debated over these over political policies, over conservative liberal debates, and we're not going out to share Christ. It's a distraction from our main purpose. We, we, we live in a world that constantly create idols for people to follow, idols that draws their hearts, their eyes away from Christ. Think about your sins. Your sins are aimed at pitting you against God. We're always in a spiritual battle. And that, I don't get this. I, I don't really I don't mean that we need to over-spiritualize everything, right? You know, a chair is still a chair, and you know, we're still here within a physical, you know, physical church uh, building, like we don't need to over-spiritualize that. But it does mean that we are aware that there's greater cosmic powers at work here. As there's greater cosmic powers at work, that more than what we see with our physical eyes. We recognize that there is indeed a spiritual battle going on. We become so much more aware of how important our faith is today. 
how important Christ is to us today. Because Satan right now is aiming at your heart. He wants your heart because he wants you to love this world more than God. And we realize that. And we realize that that's what's happening right now. And it will cause us to take our devotionals more seriously. It will cause us to take our community here more seriously. It will cause us to take our lives more seriously. That we will recognize the importance of how much we need to be in the Word of God, which is the sword to battle against Satan. We will recognize the importance of prayer, which gives us protection through God's Holy Spirit. We will recognize the importance of our community so that we may walk with one another to pursue on, to press on in this race. More than that, we will take our lives seriously. We will take our education, our schooling, our jobs more seriously because all this stuff means something. We're, what we're learning from school, there is indeed a spiritual battle going on there. What we do in our jobs, there's a spiritual battle going on there. Again, not over-spiritualizing everything. What you do physically, if you're an engineer, you're still working with materials and stuff like that. But there's, there's also a lot of philosophy going on, a lot of different worldviews going into every project. There's people you're dealing with whose souls are lost. There's a lot here that we take more seriously. We will take our relationships more seriously, our marriages, our family lives. When scripture tells us our marriage is to represent Christ and the gospel for his love for the church, shouldn't that mean we take our marriage more seriously? I know that you guys here are married, but it's preparing you for the future. We care about this because it's a spiritual battle. See, when spiritual warfare becomes real for us, it makes us take God more seriously. We are not just people who are stuck in the middle of this, like we're like in the middle of this and God and Satan are just battling out. Remember, the battle here is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpents, between us, the church, and the rest of the world. We are fully involved in this battle. Uh, uh, to end, turn with me to, to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John, written by the same author, Revelation. 1 John chapter 3, looking at verse 8 and 9, we see here how clearly this battle is playing out. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But they're saying, if you are sinning all the time you're really following satan here's the reason why god sent jesus this reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil verse 9 no one born of god makes a practice of sinning for why for god's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, you're either a son of God or your son of the devil. Jesus makes that clear when he dealt with the Pharisees, Jewish ethnic Jews, these Pharisees. He told them that they were, their true father was Satan. We see that clearly laid out here. Anyone who continues sinning is of the devil, but no one, anyone who is born of God, 
does not continue to sin. We are all dealing with here with spiritual warfare. And next week, we will see how that spiritual warfare will play out through Revelation. But for today, let us remind ourselves that the only one who can save us from the jaws of the dragon is God. Christ is the only one who can crush the serpent's head. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, whose hand can be against us? Let us then look to God. Let us look to Christ. Let us clean him all the more. So let us pray. Let us read. Let us listen to God. Let us obey him because God is our savior, our treasure, our joy, our hero, our victory over Satan and his power, over Satan and sin, over death itself. Let us continue to cling to God. Let's pray.